You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In October 1970, a woman walked into a Los Angeles welfare office with an unusual child at her side. The woman had actually walked into the wrong room. She was instead looking for services for the blind. But the girl who was with her caught the welfare worker's attention. They didn't know it yet, but one of the worst victims of child abuse in American history had just walked through their door. The girl, who appeared to be seven or eight years old, was actually 13, but clearly malnourished and undersized. She had a fluttering, unfocused gaze. She couldn't speak, and she walked only in a strange bunny hop. Soon, authorities discovered that this girl, since given the alias Jeannie Wiley in case files, had spent most of her life up until that point bound and locked away in isolation, either chained to a training toilet or confined in a crib-like cage. From the time she was an infant, her father had subjected her to the severe abuse. Meanwhile, her mother simply ignored it. Over the next few years, after welfare workers rescued her, Jeannie became a case study for researchers at UCLA's Children's Hospital. They studied how the abuse had impacted her, attempted to see if she had the capability to learn and speak, and began to care deeply for this fragile teenager who'd endured unimaginable torment all her life. But these years in the hands of researchers and doctors offered only a reprieve, not an escape, from the nightmare that was Jeannie's life. Eventually, conflict would tear her care team apart, and Jeannie would be sent to foster care, then to an adult home care. To this day, she remains a ward of the state of California, her present whereabouts and condition unknown to the public. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting staff writer Kalina Fraga. Today, we're looking at the tragic case of Jeannie Wiley, America's most notorious feral child. was born in 1957, and from the very beginning, her home was plagued by grief, anger, abuse, and death. Her parents, Clark and Irene, had had three children before her. The first, a girl, had died when Clark left her in a cold garage because she would not stop crying. The second, a boy, had died due to complications at birth. And the third, Jeannie's only living sibling, John, had been taken by their grandmother, who saw that her son, Clark, was clearly an unstable parent. Cold and controlling, Clark widely ran his household with an iron fist. 
He'd always been demanding and cruel, subjecting both Irene and John to beatings, but his brutality worsened after his mother died. Practically mad with grief, and with John back in his care, Clark's violence toward his children escalated. He focused much of his wrath on his infant daughter, Jeannie. Believing her to be mentally disabled, Clark locked her away and forbade anyone from engaging with her in any way. He tied her naked to a potty chair or threw her into a crib covered with chicken wire. Clark deprived her of stimulation or affection, beat her with a wooden board, and fed her only milk or pablum, a processed cereal for babies. Her brother John later described his childhood by saying, My house was like a concentration camp. I never knew what normal was. Frank Lindley, the detective who later arrested Clark and Irene for child abuse, agreed with John's analogy. He said that Clark Wiley was, quote, a total dictator in the house. His word was law. Hitler could have taken lessons from him. For more than a decade, the abuse continued. But in 1970, Irene Wiley, who later claimed her blindness had kept her from seeing and stopping Clark's violence, decided to leave her husband. John was 18 and had run away from home, so she took Jeannie and fled. In October, Irene walked into the Los Angeles County Welfare Office where Jeannie's case first came to light. Workers immediately noticed the emaciated girl at Irene's side, the odd way she held her hands up to her chest, and how she shuffled along like a rabbit. Clearly, something was terribly wrong with her. Those in the office immediately notified the police. The ensuing investigation revealed the hell that Jeannie had been through, but on the day before her parents were meant to appear in court, Clark Wiley shot himself and died. In a note left behind, he scrawled out that, quote, the world will never understand, unquote. His life was over, but for Jeannie, turned over to UCLA's Children's Hospital, a new chapter in her life was just beginning. Freed from her parents' abuse, Jeannie was given the alias by which we know her to this day in order to protect her privacy. Her new name wasn't chosen at random. As one of the linguists who helped treat her later said, quote, When we think about what a genie is, a genie is a creature that comes out of a bottle or whatever, but emerges into human society past childhood. We assume that it isn't really a creature that had a human childhood." Unquote. Indeed, Jeannie bore the scars of obvious physical and psychological abuse. At 14, she still wore diapers, and the few words she could get out reflected the horrors she'd suffered all her life. They included, stop it, and no more. Before long, the team tasked with Jeannie's care decided to treat and study the girl as she re-entered some form of human society. They applied for a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health and dubbed their study Developmental Consequence of Extreme Social Isolation. The team of psychologists and linguists specifically hoped to see if Jeannie could learn to talk. In 1967, linguist Eric Lennonberg suggested that children could not learn language after puberty. 
The team at Children's Hospital, dubbed the Genie Team, wanted to test Lennonberg's theory and see what they could learn. They quickly realized that they had their work cut out for them. One member of the team, psychologist James Kent, called Jeannie the most profoundly damaged child I've ever seen. Her life, he said, was a wasteland. Team members were also uncertain if Jeannie had been born with mental disabilities or if they'd instead either developed or worsened during her years of trauma. But though Tess put Jeannie's mental capacity at the level of a one-year-old, she seemed bright, curious, and eager to learn. She learned to play and dress herself. Meanwhile, she took a liking to drawing, listening to music, and collecting plastic buckets. Though complex grammar seemed to elude her, Jeannie's vocabulary and understanding of the world around her seemed to grow. In halting, choppy phrases, Jeannie told doctors about her father. She said, Father, hit arm, big wood. Jeannie cry, not spit. Father, hit face, spit. Father, hit big stick. Father is angry. Father, hit Jeannie, big stick. Father, take peace wood, hit, cry. Father, make me cry. To Susan Curtis, a graduate student studying theoretical linguistics, Jeannie showed clear signs of intelligence, just not the intelligence most people develop during normal, nurturing childhoods. Curtis said, quote, Jeannie was smart. She could hold a set of pictures so they told a story. She could create all sorts of complex structures from sticks. She had other signs of intelligence. The lights were on, unquote. Curtis also grew fond of the girl and took her for walks and shopping trips. She and other members of the research team noticed that perfect strangers seemed to be drawn to something in Jeannie, often stopping to give her small tokens and gifts. As Curtis said, quote, I spent most of my time being a human being, relating to her, and we fell in love with each other, unquote. As Jeannie's human connection strengthened, she seemed to be taking tentative steps towards normalcy. Sadly, this period of love, growth, and safety would soon come to an end. As time went on, small cracks began to form between the members of the team that was studying and caring for Jeannie Wiley. In 1971, she went to live with Jean Butler, her nursery school teacher, but other members of the team soon accused Butler of cutting off their access to Jeannie. Though Butler claimed she was protecting the girl, who she said was being exploited by members of the Jeannie team, Curtis and others said that Butler sought only fame. According to Curtis, Butler wanted to become known as the next Annie Sullivan, the quote-unquote miracle worker who taught language to Helen Keller. As a result, Butler was asked to leave the team. Jeannie was then moved into the home of psychologist David Riggler, where she lived for four years. There, Jeannie indulged her love of drawing and enjoyed listening to classical piano. But at the end of the day, Jeannie was more than a child in need of a loving home. She was the subject of research, and when funding dried up, the team, after all, had made no scientific findings, she was moved out of Riggler's home. 
From there, Jeannie bounced between her mother's house, foster homes, and various other institutions where more abuse sometimes awaited her. At one facility for special needs children, administrators punished Jeannie for vomiting. Following that incident, she lost all the vocabulary that she'd gained over the past few years. Jeannie never spoke again. At the same time, her mother claimed that the girl had been exploited by researchers on the Jeannie team. She filed a lawsuit in 1979 against Children's Hospital and against Jeannie's caregivers, claiming that they'd used her daughter for, quote, prestige and profit. Though the suit was settled in 1984, it also cut off Jeannie from people like Susan Curtis, who had cared deeply for her. Curtis, who had continued to work with Jeannie on a volunteer basis, was devastated. As she said, quote, I was banned from seeing her and was prevented from explaining to her why. Jeannie had so many losses, and here she was losing the one person who had remained in her life ever since I met her. From then on, the abused girl who had shocked the nation and fascinated researchers slowly began to disappear from the public eye. ensuing years, very few people had any interaction with Jeannie Wiley. When they did, they saw little trace of the curious girl, eager to learn, who had once both fascinated researchers and earned their warmest sympathies. Russ Reimer, a journalist who wrote articles and a book on Jeannie's story, described her 27th birthday in devastating terms. Jeannie, he wrote, had become a, quote, large, bumbling woman with a facial expression of cow-like incomprehension, unquote. Describing the scene, he said, quote, her eyes focus poorly on the cake. Her dark hair has been hacked off raggedly at the top of her forehead, giving her the aspect of an asylum inmate, unquote. Jay Shirley, the psychiatrist who first assessed Jeannie Wiley and attended her 27th and 29th birthdays, described her as silent, depressed, and destined for a lifetime of living in institutions. Calling those events heart-rending, Shirley added, Jeannie was this isolated person, incarcerated for all those years, and she emerged and lived in a more reasonable world for a while and responded to this world. And then the door was shut, and she withdrew again, and her soul was sick. Meanwhile, Jeannie still remained cut off from researchers like Curtis, who'd grown to truly care for her during the course of their research. I have spent the last 20 years looking for her, Curtis said in 2008. I'm not in touch with her, but not by choice. They never let me have any contact with her. I've become powerless in my attempts to visit her or write to her. I long to see her. There is a hole in my heart and soul from not being able to see her that doesn't go away. Jeannie's brother John, who died in 2011, later expressed great guilt about his sister, who he saw for the last time in 1982. John, who called himself a living dead man, said of Jeannie, quote, I tried to put her out of my mind because of the shame, but I'm glad she got some help, unquote. As far as anyone knows, Jeannie Wiley is living at a small, privately run facility for underdeveloped adults. 
at least she was back in the year 2000. Since then, only vague, scattered reports of her whereabouts and condition have surfaced. But Jeannie's story lives on. Her life, from its horrific beginnings to its long fade-out into anonymity, captures the extremes of cruelty and kindness, abuse and care, and what it means to be truly human. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.